call to worship this morning coming from the very Word of God found in Psalm 24. We hear now these words starting in verse 7. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Congregation, receive now the greeting of our God. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Shall we take our Bibles out and now open up to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21. And we will consider Matthew 21, verses 33 through 46 together. Matthew 21, starting at verse 33 to the end of the chapter. Hear now the very word of our God. Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him into the vineyard and killed him, threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these servants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I will tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to the people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were speaking, seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Thus far the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Shall we pray together for a moment? Our gracious Heavenly Father, as we have your word out before us, we pray that you would now bless the preaching of your word. That as we have walked in one way, we may leave sanctified by your spirit as your people. We pray this in Jesus Christ's most glorious name. Amen and amen. Well, congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, in this passage before us, verses 33 to the end of the chapter, Jesus, throughout chapter 21 now, has been teaching 
at the temple complex. At the beginning of chapter 21, you have the triumphal entry, where the people cry out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the Son of David, Hosanna. He's now been teaching, he's been healing people, he's cleansed out the temple, and now he's having to deal with, if you read just a few passages earlier, he's now having to deal with the religious leaders, the chief priests and the elders of the people. The religious leaders questioned Jesus' authority in verses 21 through 27. Who gave you the authority to teach and do these things? Jesus responded with the parable of the two sons in verses 28 through 32. And in today's passage, we find another parable, and Jesus continues to explain his redemptive work from the pages of the Old Testament. Now, the the theme for today's passage and this sermon is Jesus continues his discussion with the religious leaders using a parable, the parable of the landowner, and the reality of the cornerstone, the reality of the cornerstone of the kingdom of heaven. Well, this is the discussion, this is the conversation, the back and forth that they are having between the chief priests, the Pharisees, the the elders of the people, and Jesus. It's a back and forth. The first question, then the next question, and now we get to the final question in the chapter. We also see in this chapter the second of two parables, giving really the same message. The religious leaders are no longer leading in the kingdom. Let's consider first of all, before we see Jesus deals with their response and their answer in 43 to the end, before we see Jesus points them to the Old Testament, particularly a a Psalm 118 and Isaiah 28, before he goes there, let's consider the parable together. Look again at verses 33 through 40. This is that classic and a lot of times well-loved parable. Many of us remember it and love it from childhood Sunday school. Look again at verses 33, and we'll stop and, and reflect starting at verse 36 there. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and, and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to the tenants and, and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get, it, to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. Jesus, with this parable, is in a sense setting the stage for the conclusion of this interaction in chapter 21. We have a landowner. He's got enough land that he can now build his own vineyard, putting a fence around it to protect it from those that wish to steal or do harm, sabotage. He builds within his vineyard a wine press and a tower for protection. He, as most people would do, he turns it over to workers, to tenants, 
to people to manage his vineyard and to create the wine and to protect his investment. And again, now, now we notice he also then doesn't stay there and kind of lord it over them. Instead, he goes away. He goes to a far country. Vacation or, I don't know, he's, he's, he's gone. And so Jesus informs us that the landowner kept track of time. He knew when these grapes were in season and when the wine should be ready. He knew. And so he sends his servants back to the tenants in order to receive the fruit of his land. We know this story. We also know, really, as we read through the passage, what all it means. It's it's getting at to a larger truth. We see there the, the beatings, the murder, the stoning. We see that he sends more servants just for the tenants to do the same thing. Breaking it down, we see these conclusions. Within the context of the Scriptures, we recognize the landowner is God. He owns this world. The vine dresser. It could be understood to be Israel, but here... I believe the focus is a little bit more narrow to these religious leaders. To the leaders of the people. The ones in charge of the vine. The vineyard. It could be Israel. It could be the land. It could be the world. And the servants. We know the servants are the prophets of the Old Testament who, as Jesus would point out in other places, these religious leaders' parents did beat, did murder, did stone. One of them you find in the Gospel of Matthew, John, who was put to death, who had already been questioned earlier in Matthew 21, Jesus says, where did his authority come from? Man or heaven? But the story continues, doesn't it? Look at, look at starting at verse 37 to 40. Finally, he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son, but when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, oh, this is the heir, come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Jesus continues the story. It's now, if we're paying close attention, it's now to the present moment. Here is the son of the landowner standing in front of these wicked tenants. And he's telling them, whether they realize it or not, I know what you're getting ready to do to me. In fact, Earlier in the Gospels, he's told his disciples over and over again, we're going to Jerusalem, where the chief priests and the elders of the people, they're going, they're going to arrest me, they're going to hand me over to the Gentiles to be crucified, but I will rise on the third day. It's one of those moments where Peter says, no, 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 Lord. And he says, get behind me, Satan. Go, no. Matthew 16. So, that's what this parable is getting at. 
It's getting at the fact that finally God is no longer sending more prophets, more prophets. He's now sent His Son. That's what Jesus is getting at here. And notice, in the story, in the parable, Jesus is telling them these wicked tenants are going to seize the Son, take Him outside of the vineyard, and put Him to death. This is the reality of the Gospel message. See, John says in, the, in his Gospel that Jesus came to His own and they rejected Him. John chapter 1. He doesn't, he doesn't get far out of the, out of the intro to His Gospel before He gets to this reality. What this parable is pointing out. The religious leaders are ones of, who put Jesus to death. They may not have hold the, the hammer or the nails, but they are behind the men crucifying Jesus. They are the ones that started the, 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 the shout. Not Hosanna. That was just a couple of days ago in Matthew 21. But in just a, a couple of days next, you know, down the road here, down in this week, they are going to be the ones starting the shout, crucify Him. Crucify Him. That's these men. That's their call. They committed the murder of the Son of God. The Messiah, Jesus Christ. Now consider the question Jesus raises there in verse, in verse 40. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? This is the devastating message of the parable. What's next? What will follow? When the end comes, what's going to happen? The answer, as we will see, they get it right. It's judgment. Jesus takes them to the Scriptures to force the answer. In verses 41 and 42, He takes them to the very Word of God, the very Word they have memorized. Jesus places the burden of proof, the burden of answering this heavy question upon the chief priests and the elders of the people. What say you, leaders? In verse 41, they give the answer. They give the answer. They give, finally, a correct answer. Look what they say in verse 41. They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. We need to recognize they, they get the answer right. They're, it's correct. that They understand, in some respect, these religious leaders understand the justice of God. They get it. One of those wonderful attributes of God that is revealed in creation. They recognize it. They've read their Bibles. They know what is justice. But first of all, recognize that the landowner, what they get here is the landowner will destroy the wicked tenants. He will. This is God's justice. Retribution. Upon those who have gone against His Most High Majesty. 
Today, people sit and strive to remove God's justice away from their, their thinking about God. Uh, uh, that's, you know, well, you look at this. That's just, that's just not fair. I had a pastor that my wife and I sat under who started believing in such a thing as annihilationalism. The belief that there's no such thing as hell. When a person dies they are, and, and they die in their sin apart from Christ... They're just annihilated. And you, and you sit down with the man and you ask him why. And he says, because my mom was an unbeliever and she struggled with depression. Why would God continue to have her suffer even in death? I just can't believe in my God that my God would do that. And you quickly find out, well, his God and my God may be two different things. Here's the reality. The landowner here indeed will come. And he will bring judgment. He will judge them for not doing what they were commissioned to do. He will judge them for allowing greed to take over, which then leads to murder. And now, as the parable is applied to these religious, religious leaders, they must now live with the consequences of their actions. Secondly, notice how this destruction is described. It's described as being miserable. Miserable. This is important. It describes the state of the sinner, doesn't it? That the misery that we live in as sinners. Not talking yet about the fact that we're pulled out of that and we're placed in Christ, but look at that reality. Look at that. The prodigal found himself in the misery of what? The pig trough. Eating with pigs. It's miserable. The sinner, when faced with his sin recognizes then, in light of Christ's gracious hands, recognizes the misery that they are in and sees that Christ took that misery for them so that they can live and be set free. Misery is that sinful state that man is in and if they remain in their sins, it is the state that they will continue in. It is to be miserable. The third, look at the landowner. who will, will, He will then take the land back and he will lease it to others who desire to work it. Here's where we see the religious leaders. They are, they're having everything removed from them. And if you, look in an, if you look up there with other passages, the parable of the two sons, it's given to tax collectors and harlots. It's given to sinners. It's given to people they didn't want anything to do with. The parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee says, God, I think well, I'm not like that man. That guy can't even look up to heaven when he's praying. That guy can't even say, you're too holy. I'm too sinful. Please. Jesus says, he lives forgiven. This guy still stands condemned. Here they are. Here they are right in front of Jesus. Here they are on display. And Jesus is telling them through two parables, you've lost it. 
It doesn't belong to you. It never did. You were never the landowner. It was not yours to control. It was not yours. It's always belonged to God. Therefore, He has every right to snatch it away from you and give it to someone who doesn't even think they can look at me. Because they know in their misery what they are owed. But it's not what they get. Look at what they're getting. Look at the grace of God taking what people squandered and giving it to people that sit back and say, I'm a poor pitiful sinner. I don't even deserve to be in your presence. I don't deserve to be here. How did I get into this vineyard in the first place? I must have took a wrong turn. It's Isaiah before the Lord falling flat on his face because he's got an unclean mouth. He knows to be in the presence of God means death for the sinner. But for the one who has the grace of Christ, it's life. It's abundant life. And it's been removed from these religious leaders, these Pharisees, these chief priests, these elders of the people. And look at who it's given to. The people of the world said don't deserve it. The Rahabs of our culture. The Matthew, who's one of the disciples. And notice where Jesus takes them. As He continues to apply this, notice where He takes them. Look at verse 42. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing. And it's marvelous in our eyes. Jesus takes them to the Word of God. Jesus takes them to Psalm 118, verse 22. Psalm 118, verse 22. And Isaiah 28, verse 16. So that we understand when Jesus references just this one little be part of this verse, He's referencing the whole of the psalm. And to get just a little glimpse of that, consider what Psalm 8, 118 says. And I'm only going to start reading at verse 22 and read just to verse 24. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. We heard that in Matthew. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. We heard that in Matthew. Now this is the day of the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. We sing that, don't we? But we lose sight that it's referring to this moment in the Gospel. This moment where the landowner is removing it from these wicked tenants and giving it to you. That's all of 118. And I just read three verses. He also is referencing Isaiah 28. Isaiah 28. Verse 16. I'll read verses 16 through 19 so you can get an idea. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. And I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line. 
and hell will sweep away the refuge of lies, and waters will overwhelm the shelters. Then your covenant with death will be annulled, and your agreement with Sheol will not stand, when the overwhelming scourge passes through, and you will be beaten down by it. As often as it passes through, it will take you. For morning by morning, it will pass through, day by day, and by night, it will be sheer terror to understand the message. Jesus, in this one little reverse, is referring to both of those passages. In the psalm, it is celebrating the salvation that we have because Jesus is rejected. This cornerstone has been rejected. But look at what the tax collectors and the harlots, they take the stone that was rejected and they make it something that it was always meant to be. The cornerstone of a bigger foundation. This is the salvation. And then you see in Isaiah's reference the judgment that's coming upon those that reject it. It's simple. If you have a doctrine of election, it's true. Reprobation must follow. It's there. Because heaven is true, therefore, logically, hell is also true. To deny one is to actually deny the other. The psalm is celebrating God's salvation of His people alongside a message that reiterates the reality that with salvation there's also the flip side of that coin. There will be some who will not be saved. That's God's judgment. The people who reject the Christ will receive what this parable is describing. God's judgment. The people who turn to Christ and humble themselves will receive what this parable is describing. God's grace and God's mercy. And so Jesus continues in His response. He continues in verses 43. And then we'll see their response in verse 44. Or in verses 45 and 46. Look again at verses 43 and 44. Jesus applies it. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Grind him to powder like a millstone. You see, Jesus is applying the truth or the doctrine from the Old Old Testament, those two passages, and He's applying it to those who are listening. And we need to know there are two groups listening to Jesus' teaching right now. The religious leaders interrupted Jesus as He was teaching the people. Yes, His disciples are there, but Jesus is teaching a multitude right around the temple complex, and the religious leaders come and interrupt Him while He's teaching. And so there's two groups present. And He's talking to both of them. The people and the disciples hear Jesus' interpretation and application of these two Old Testament passages and of His parable. He hears what Jesus is saying 
about the religious leaders. And they get it. They also heard the religious leaders' unwillingness to say that John was a prophet sent by God. They said, we don't know. No. And Jesus, now with this parable and these passages, is accusing them of unbelief. While at the same time, see how Jesus continues in these passages in application. First, Jesus takes them to the kingdom of God. And again, He reinforces the two parables found here in Matthew 21 when He speaks of fruit. This is directly connected to the vineyard parable. The one in our passage. The chief priests and the elders of the people are not bearing fruit. They were not. John brought forth fruit. Jesus bears fruit. His disciples bear fruit. But these men did not. Instead, notice the kingdom is being removed from them and given to those who will bear fruit to the glory of God. This is the point of the parable. Secondly, the Old Testament reality is seen only in Jesus Christ. He's the only way we can understand it. He is the cornerstone. That pastor that I spoke of with that view, the church he pastored was cornerstone. (laughs) Evangelical Presbyterian Church. If you turn to the cornerstone for your salvation, guess what you have? You are entering the presence of God. But if you reject that cornerstone, look at what this happens. You will be crushed by the weight of this rock that you are rejecting. It will ground you to dust. And so look at the response of these religious leaders in verses 45 and 46. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, his parables, both of them, they perceived that he was speaking about them. <laughs> Aren't they smart? And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. The crowds are smarter than they are at this moment. You see, with these two verses, Matthew uncovers for us the two realities leading to the cross of Christ, leading us just a couple of chapters later. First, it's Jesus' very own teaching. Look at that. His teaching provoked them. He wasn't a safe preacher tickling the flesh, telling the people what they wanted to hear. No, there was danger when He preached. See that. Look at that. The chief priests and the Pharisees understood Jesus was referring to them. They weren't thick-headed people. He said to them, you're not getting in. 
And they got it. They were not dumb. They understood what Jesus was saying. And it probably came even more clear for uh, most teachers and preachers will use hand gestures. You know, they'll point to the person that they want to talk to. They'll make directions. They'll use that at their advantage. John did it. (laughs) He said, Who told you to come, you brood of vipers? Jesus did it. Woe to you Pharisees! He did it here too. He did it here too. But the second thing we need to see as we learn from this passage, is they were intent to do Jesus harm earlier, but especially at this moment. Especially now. But just like in earlier chapters in Matthew, they feared the people. Just like earlier in this chapter, they feared the people more than what they thought was the right thing. The people... Even some of the Pharisees, think of Nicodemus. Even some of the Sanhedrin, Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, they knew Jesus was a prophet. They knew he was from God. But here we have these men fearing the people more than they feared God. Now we know, we know deep down, people are fickle. People are fickle. They change. With the flip of a coin, they change. The snap of a finger, they change. And so if they can say one Sunday morning, Hosanna, Hosanna, they can also say that next Friday, that coming up Friday, crucify Him. Crucify Him. How many days is that? It's within the work week. The week of the feast. Look at the duplicity of the people. That's what they did. And look at their leaders. Just biding their time. Just waiting for the right moment. Think about it for just a moment, congregation, as we come to a close. The people believed Jesus was a prophet. They recognized Him as the Son of David. Recognized as the one coming from the Most High. Matthew chapter 21. Just the first few verses. They called out Hosanna. But something happens. Something happens between Palm Sunday and Good Friday. Something happens in the course of just a few days to get the people to turn on Jesus. And that something did not catch Jesus by surprise. He did not have to all of a sudden go, Oh no, oh no, no, plan B. Oh, this, this, this backfired. I didn't realize they weren't going to like my preaching this much. Oh, he knew it was going to happen. He knew. It didn't take him by surprise. He predicted the moment. He's encouraging the moment. He knew the chief priests and elders of the people were going to turn on him. 
turn Him over to be crucified. He knew this. This is why Jesus is here. This is why He said this parable at this moment. In front of this crowd. In front of the temple. The parable Jesus has designed here is to instruct the believer to humble himself. But it's at the same time a dire warning to those that remain in their unbelief. We find the typical, the typical response that most unbelievers give to Jesus' message. Notice, most unbelievers hear this, and if they remain in their unbelief, what's their response? They get angry. They want nothing to do with this God. So they get angry. And this happens in a fallen world. But it's unnatural. Because we're called to worship this God. When you read this passage, what is your response? When you go through this parable, when you, when you consider all of Matthew 21 later, what is your response to such a high call and demand? Do you find it is a moment that like the tax collector, you are broken and you are humbled before the Lord who would look upon you? What is man that you are mindful of and the son of man that you would... Is that your response? Are you humbled by the voice of Christ? Or have you been sitting here thinking to yourself, I'm so glad he's preaching this because... Brother and sister, so-and-so really needs to hear this. You see, that's the answer of the Pharisee. I'm so thankful I'm not like so-and-so. If you've ever wondered, was this sermon meant for you? The answer is yes. I had a deacon one time come up to me. And say, did you have me in mind in that sermon? I looked at him in the eye and I said, yes I did. (laughs) And he goes, oh! (laughs) See, in the parable of the tenants, they were the ones who were to do the work of the Lord. They were the ones to go into the vineyard and do the work of the vineyard. The warning is the same today. It's the same. You find in Revelation chapter 2, if the church loses its first love, the threat is to have the lampstand removed and you no longer are a church. The RCUS has experienced such moments when ministers begin to lead congregations away with their hobby horse of this political thing or that political thing or this side idea of marriage or sex or whatever it is. And they lose sight of the first love, which is the gospel. It should not surprise us when churches close down. That's the dire warning of this passage. If we are not about the business of what the church is supposed to be doing, why are we here? What's the point? If it's just a social club, I don't want to be here. 
I don't like people that much. But if it's about the Gospel, if it's about seeing sinners saved, and see the Kingdom of Heaven open wide, that's it. That's the vineyard of the Lord. We are the tenants. May we get to the work that Christ has called us to. May we continue to see His church grow as His Word spreads in Lincoln, in Omaha, in Sutton, and in so many other places. That's the work we're called to do. The growth comes from God as He blesses the work of His Son in His church. Paul planted, Apollos watered, but who brought the growth? That's the vineyard. May we not lose sight of that. May we find ourselves in moments like this, humbling ourselves to seek the Lord's guidance in our lives as we are in His congregation. So that we may continue to see His hands Bring growth. Not just numeric, but also personal growth. As we grow in our faith and our understanding of what Christ has done for us. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious Merciful Heavenly Father, what a joy it is to be with Your people and to be in Your presence, to be a part of this vineyard that You continue to call to grow. Yes, You take moments where You have to clip away dead branches, but that's only so that You can continue to cause more growth to come. And so we pray, Heavenly Father, that You would continue to bring the increase as we humbly find ourselves bowing before Your gracious throne. May we continue to see Your Son lead and Your Spirit guide by Your Word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.